Hello, everybody, and welcome to Bad Gaze, a podcast about evil and complicated queers in history. My name is Ben Miller. I'm a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwulis Museum in Berlin. And my name's Hugh Lemmy. I'm a writer and author. Last week, we talked about Dong Shan, the Han Dynasty imperial favorite whose passion of the cut sleeve became a literary model for homosexuality throughout Chinese history. Who are we talking about this week, Hugh? Well, today's subject is the sort of character who has, I think, um, sort of been extinguished from British public life today, and um, maybe that's for the best, <laughs> as we'll learn. Well, British it, public life today is so uh, positive and healthy. Yeah, that, I mean, it's not got any better, I guess. He's this sort of mass of contradictions, and he's a sort of mass that um, confuses the idea of a, like an easy history, I guess, of like lessons we can learn, because few of us, obviously, are, are saints, and most of us are also a mass of contradictions, more or less. But what's fascinating about today's subject is how willing he was to live his contradictions out in public. And um, yeah, that's what we'll be exploring today. So how did this man manage to be both an avant-garde poet and a gossip columnist, a communist revolutionary and a high Anglican devotee, a labor organizer and a lord? Or perhaps more accurately, how did he manage to inhabit all these roles with a level of seeming sincerity and honest commitment? Was he an honest man or a devious one, a man driven by fidelity or by treachery? Perhaps we'll get to the bottom of it all when we discuss the life of Tom Dryberg, the Lord Bradwell, journalist, socialist, MP, chairman of the Labour Party, and cocksucker. I cannot wait for this episode, Hugh. <laughs> you have been teasing me with this story for years. This, this Finally... This, this, like like uh, Lord Dryberg himself, is going to be a big boy because um, there's just so much fascinating stuff about his life, and I just couldn't decide what to do about. But um, I hope hopefully it'll be of interest to you because just um, so that people know, Hugh has promised this episode in I think now two previous seasons, and both times a few days before recording said, "You know what? I just can't do it now. There's too much help." So. <laughs> This is hotly anticipated, and I can't wait to finally get a, get my teeth into this one. Um, yeah, me too. Because these contradictions were accumulated slowly across his life, I think it's fitting to start with his obituaries, in part because this will give us a good idea of why he's included in the category of bad gay. Um, he has the dubious distinction of being the first public figure that the Times, the Times newspaper, that august newspaper of record, ever explicitly described as homosexual when they described him in his obituary as, quote, a journalist, an intellectual, a drinking man, a gossip, a high churchman, a liturgist, homosexual, a friend of Lord Beaverbrook, an enemy of Lord Beaverbrook, a politician of the left, a member of parliament, a member of the Labour Party National Executive, a stylist, an unreliable man of undoubted distinction. <laughs> the Telegraph. Same, except for the Church of England and the Lord <laughs> Beavercourt stuff. Lord Beaverbrook, yeah. Lord Beaverbrook, fine. Um, the, the Telegraph also didn't pull its bunches, saying he was, quote, a homosexual philanderer of a most pernicious and indefatigable kind, wholly shameless, without the smallest scruple or remorse, utterly regardless of the feelings of or consequences to his partners, determined on the crudest and most frequent form of carnal satisfaction to the exclusion of all of any other consideration whatever, a queer's Casanova, end quote. Sounds like some of my best friends. I was going to say, you can see why he's a, a favorite of mine already. Um, they actually compared him to another of my uh, personal, oh, maybe, I don't think Dryberg's a personal hero, but they compared him to one of my personal heroes, Ian Forster, who they also regarded as a pathetic homosexual, quote, for whom homosexuality was a lifelong burden and shame, and who agonized about its moral consequences. Um, 
in his of in course his... of course nowadays if anyone you know in in one university class for one semester someone decided to teach one fewer Forster novel in favor of something else uh, these same journalists or more likely these same journalists inbred children uh, would, des- <laughs> would describe that as a great attack against the foundations of the British state when you know their inbred parents thought of Forster as being a great attack against the British nation. Um, exactly. The, yeah. point, the point being that the British media is made up of one of the most profoundly boring and stupid and reactionary classes of inbred lunatics to have ever lived <laughs> um, and uh, does a disgrace to the name of the free press. Yeah. So well, it is excellent um, biography of Dreiberg, which I recommend and which I read for this episode. In fact, I read well before this episode, but I read it again for the episode. Uh, Francis Ween points out that this manages to get both Dryberg and Forster terribly wrong. But it is interesting in its representation of the the good, sad, guilty homosexual and the bad, open, shameless homosexual as common set of stereotypes in the strange decades that followed partial decriminalization in 1967. Uh, Tom, of course, would have loved all of this. After all, at his own funeral, he demanded an anti-eulogy sort of thing, uh, in which his seven, the seven deadly sins would be gone through one by one and compared to his own behavior, or rather his own behavior weighed up against the sins. Um, his, friend, <laughs> his, his friends in many ways were even sharper and more honest, and hence quite a bit crueler than his enemies in print. So how did Tom get to this position uh, where he was seemingly so powerful despite being so public in his sin? I think it would be impossible were it not for a number of social and political revolutions through which he lived. It all started in his youth. He was born in 1905, but he grew up in a Victorian world. His father was already 65 when he was born and had retired to the catatonically tedious town of Crowborough, already part of London's stockbroker belt, after a long career in the Indian civil service. In Tom's words, quote, When my parents came home from India as the 19th century was dying, they knew nothing of the new ideas that were stirring in the arts and in politics. They brought with them the prejudices formed in my father's youth, end quote. Already you can see the uh, the Forster comparisons. His mother was 40 and they'd already had two sons, Jack and Jim, who were 17 and 15 years older than Tom. Jack was perhaps even more eccentric than Tom himself, uh, becoming a colonial official and an anthropologist in Sudan, who would go on to be um, inducted into a local tribe, and then who he then went on to sort of fake an atrocity against that tribe that his superiors had demanded he'd carried out in reprisal for one of the tribe's raids. Um, following which he was he was sacked. Uh, Jim, on the other hand, was a surgeon who had served on the front line of the First World War before before he became a successful Harley Street consultant. But unfortunately, he couldn't sort of run out, outrun his his demons from the war, and he became a gambler and an alcoholic. He lost his wife in his practice, and he ended up migrating to the Andes, where he provided healthcare to indigenous people for most of his career. Hmm. All I guess about, he was the one decent one. Uh, yeah, um, in his way. Um, the boys were both sent to Lansing, and Tom was then sent to join them after his primary education at the Grange, a prep school near his parents' house, where the schoolboys' shorts pockets would be sewn up to stop them playing with themselves. By this, by this point, his father was going senile, uh, his mother was overbearing, and he was uh, extremely lonely. And at school at the Grange, he was inevitably bullied, uh, not just due to his parents' age or his social, iso- social isolation, but because the First World War was starting and he had a German surname. He followed in his brother's footsteps and he went to Lansing College as well, which is a, a public school in Sussex. It was there where he discovered the three passions of his life, socialism, 
cruising and Christ. <laughs> no, I really do see why you're why you're obsessed with this guy. <laughs> yeah, they they're three uh, solid interests. Um, as a teenager, he would spend his school holidays hanging out around public toilets in Brighton, or especially around one subterranean toilet in Crowborough, which had he wrote quote. One safeguard, which was both a safeguard against snoopers and a spur to tumescence. There was quite a long flight of steps down to it, so that one could hear a newcomer and guess what he was like before seeing him. If he was quick and light of step and turned out to be a randy soldier or a rosy errand boy, best of all, if he was ready and willing, but sometimes even if he was not, the impatient sperm would not be contained and the coming was a good deal hotter and faster than that of the magi. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, he had a turn of phrase. After he'd come, he would hurry to the local church, preferably High Anglican. Uh, it's a it's a complicated subject, so I won't go too far into the theology or history of High Anglicanism, but High Church Anglicanism or High Anglicanism, which is similar to, not exactly the same of, but but similar to or related to Anglo, Anglo-Catholicism. Uh, but High Church Anglicanism is a strain within the Anglican Church that remains, I guess, closer to Catholicism in its beliefs and liturgy, uh, in its understanding of the Eucharist and so on. Uh, again, it's a it's a complicated history, but some of the some parts of the High Church Anglicanism that were essentially Anglo Anglo Catholic would, in the nineteenth century, become part of the religious left in England. Um, they were sometimes referred to as the Sacramental Socialists. They're sometimes also referred to by the nickname Bells and Smells due to their continuation of the rituals like uh, Incense and the Angelus. My own dearly departed grandmother herself, like Tom, was uh, both a lover of ceremony and late of Crowborough. Uh, she received a High Anglican funeral, and it is really, really impressive. And Tom was to get quite a lot of comfort from this ritual and, and the sort of theatre of it throughout his life. But uh, at Lansing, however, Tom's life was miserable. The bullying got worse after he made moves on two, two other boys who reported him to their masters, and so he was segregated from the other students while he finished his final year. He twice attempted suicide. Um, he was actually a contemporary and a friend of Evelyn War, another future subject for bad gays, I hope. But unlike Evelyn War, he was not popular, and especially unlike War, he was becoming increasingly left-wing. He regarded the Labour Party in particular as like what he would call the middle stump church, meaning like a regular Anglican church, middle class, with neither the benefits of tradition nor radicalism. Uh, As such, as a teenager, he joined the Brighton branch of the Communist Party of Great Britain, which had only just been founded. But he followed war to Oxford, uh, where a new generation of aesthetes and literary types, a generation for whom homosexuality was not taboo, but part of the social fabric, uh, much more suited his tastes and he became interested in poetry. Dryberg was a modernist, unsurprisingly, and he lent uh, a young friend his copy of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. Uh, That young friend was actually W.H. Auden, so he does have a footnote in modernist history. And not as a poet himself, unfortunately. He he began to write poetry, and also to make this sort of forays into journalism for various communist newspapers. Most of his time was spent on uh, what we shall call here extracurricular activities. Um, these, these included attending mass, obviously, and also being arrested after a very brief spell as a communist militant during the general strike. He, he was unusually for Oxford on the right side during a general strike. Um, on the centenary of Beethoven's death, he organized a homage to Beethoven, which, uh, yeah, there's a sort of event he advertised as homage to Beethoven. But once the hall was full of these sort of middle-class 
middle-aged Oxford music lovers expect, expecting this sort of leisurely recital of, of Beethoven. He instead appeared on stage and proceeded to use a megaphone to recite his own poem, whose name was Homage to Beethoven, uh, over a specially composed modernist accompaniment. Um, I'll give you a taste of it so you can get a sort of uh, feel for his <laughs> po- poetic acumen. Quote, a pound a day makes women makes country women's holiday gay day holiday and holidays mean member but once fell the laughter from parthenon dead for dick goes tomorrow to visit december remember remember the wrinkled pinhead sky must come the shady tomb the shady tomb december help my language she is very sick <laughs> it's like if uh, it's like gertrude stein with a severe head cold <laughs> Um, yeah, I think this sort of prank is um, par for the course for the sort of, you know, Oxford bullshit that makes up so much of British culture. But he was he was attracting attention from it outside of Oxford, um, including from the poet Edith Sitwell, from whom he had become something of a protégé. Um, Edith Sitwell was a, a sort of a important figure in English modernism. Uh, and also from none other than the great beast himself, the occultist and um, very bad bisexual Alistair Crowley. Oh wow! Yeah, hey, we should. Hey, we should. We should do it at some point. Oh yeah, I it's have a bit. Crowley. It's a big one. I have Crowley on my long list, uh, okay. but it's on the list of things that are going to wait until after my dissertation <laughs> uh, for reasons that will be revealed. Well, at this point, Crowley was at the height of his um, fearful fame, and he invited Tom for dinner. And ever interested, of course, in scandal, Tom went. And it seems from both his biography and his autobiography that that. Crowley probably thought that Tom Dryberg was rich, uh, which he quite pointedly wasn't rich, and that he could tap him for some money. But they actually ended up becoming something like friends, and they met occasionally over the years, um, although the great beast could never actually persuade Tom to drop the bells and smells. There's a, there's a really good story in his biography, actually, about him going for dinner with him later in his life at the home of um, uh, the wife of the Liberal, Liberal Party's chief whip. Uh, a woman whose name was Marguerite Frieda Harris, and she was uh, an admirer of Crowley's, like a sort of fan. Oh, yeah, and that's she- Lady Frieda Harris, who painted the Thoth deck, the Thoth Tarot deck. Absolutely, yeah. She was an artist. She she designed his Thoth Tarot deck, uh, and she did her own painting under the pseudonym, and we need our little brilliant name alarm to go off here, Jesus Chutney. Jesus Chutney? <laughs> Yeah, that was her. That was her pseudonym for her paintings. So the um, originally, I think the Thotaro deck was painted by Jesus Chutney. So anyway, he's um, he's having dinner with um, the Great Beast and Jesus Chutney, uh, drinking Moet and Chandon champagne, and uh, Crowley starts this fortune telling ritual, um, sort of getting Tom to focus on these markings that he's made on this piece of paper and to tell him what he sees, and he's like getting him to like predict the future. Now. Crowley had actually given Tom one of his manuscript diaries some years earlier, perhaps when he was drunk, and he'd forgotten about it. But Tom had it and had read it. So Tom plays this trick by pretending that he's like seeing this diary, and he describes in like great detail its red leather case, the silver lining, and so on and so on. And Crowley is like astonished, um, probably more than anything, because he thinks his magic is actually working. And he um, asks him to continue, and Tom's sort of in this like trance-like state, and he says, "He says no." I, I can't see anything else, although perhaps if we have one more bottle of champagne. <laughs> uh, yeah, drinks him dry. 
But his his biggest um, extracurricular activity at Oxford, and the one would ultimately see him, I think, leaving university without his degree, was his uh, lifelong hobby of cocksucking. Um, the very bad gay Lord Boothby, who I think we discussed in quite some depth in our earlier episode on Ronnie Cray, he said that uh, Tom once told him that he thought, quote, sex was only enjoyable with someone you'd never met before and would never meet again. Oh, boy. Yeah, this is a not uncommon thing among this this sort of class of of gay at this time. It's like yeah. a, it's like a, a there's a there's a, it's hard not to read it as a form of repression. Like these are people who are extremely, extremely um, proud, often sodomites or cocksuckers or what have you. But um, there it's like by 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 transmitting all of that sexual attraction onto these different onto these um sort of transitory working class partners um it, it, they're sort of just it's a, it's a kind of distancing in a weird way it always feels like to me yeah and it's a way to keep sort of like a degree of independence but i think there's also maybe some aspect of i mean there's a, i think there's a huge aspect of um internalized homophobia going on i think oh yeah for in, sure in, in fact i want to read this this sort of passage from his autobiography autobiography in full because i think it gives a taste of that um so while he was at oxford his mother took him on holiday to liguria in italy uh, and they stayed just south of genoa and uh one day they decided to go for a walk together and tom writes this in his autobiography quote we walked from rapallo to portofino Vetta, the sturdy phallic lighthouse which sticks up from the end of a graceful promontory on the way, as we walked through a grove of pine trees, my mother slipped, probably on the pine needles, and fell. She was not at all seriously hurt, but when we reached the lighthouse, she decided to sit and rest outside while I climbed to the top. There were no other visitors. The lighthouse keeper was young, perhaps twenty-five, and sensuously attractive. Not of the lean, dark, Roman type of Italian, nor of the invitingly sinister Neapolitan or Sicilian types. Almost more Austrian-looking, with a round, tender face, plump but virile figure, fairish hair, and thick, mobile, smiling lips. Tom, with your mum sitting right downstairs? <laughs> we climbed the stairs. It was not a very tall lighthouse, but the lookout gallery that surrounded it was protected from snooping eyes by a chest-high barrier. We stood close together. He started to breathe he heavily. I caught a whiff of garlic and looked straight into my eyes. Contact was instant, consummation almost as quick. He clearly had not had any sex for some days. Within five minutes or so, I had rejoined my mother. What a long time you were up there, dear. Well, it was a lovely view, mother. Oh, Tom. <laughs> oh, Tom. I'm starting to love Tom. Well, it only gets more like this. It only gets better. Until it gets worse. Uh-oh. After he left Oxford, Tom struggled to make it as a poet, you'll be surprised to hear, although the connections that he made were quite useful. Unlike many of his peers, Tom wasn't particularly well off, and his attempts to match their consumption and his predilection for partying had detrimental effects on his finances, a lifelong struggle. He moved to Soho in London, where he worked as a washer-up in a cafe, and he shared a bed in a room upstairs with the cook. Times were very hard for him. Evelyn wore a recounts seeing him at a mass he says quote i went to church in margaret street where i was discomposed to observe tom dryberg's satanic face in the congregation he told me he was starving but he would not come to luncheon luckily uh, edith sitwell who was probably the only person to ever see anything in tom's poetry was there to lend a hand 
and he was spending quite a lot of time at her her place in the hours where he wasn't working, having tea with her frequent guests, who included um, T.S. Eliot, Aldous Huxley, and H.G. Wells. Seeing that he was struggling, she got him a trial as a reporter at Daily Express, owned by the press baron uh, and actual baron, the Tory peer Lord Beaverbrook. He got the measure of the British press pretty quickly. How it was essentially a mouthpiece for the rich, the undue influence that it had, still has, continues to have, on sort of who is acceptable in public life and who must be suppressed, and you know, on shaping public discourse in general. In his biography, he wrote that quote, "Freedom of the press in Britain means freedom to print such of the proprietor's prejudices as the advertisers don't object to." But he, he this did, is entirely correct. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly the same. Um, but he did have two lucky breaks. Uh, first of all, Lord Beaverbrook liked him, and due to the capricious power of proprietors, this would actually allow him enormous leeway at the start of his career. And secondly, he got a scoop when covering the arrival in Britain of Frank Buckman, a, Luther- a Lutheran evangelical leader who'd come to the UK to help spread his revivalist movement, and especially amongst young men. This group was known at the time as the Oxford Group, but would later take the name Moral Rearmament. It all- oh, that sounds ominous. Yeah. Do not like the sound of that. <laughs> well, it organized these meetings with these young students, and its aims were, um, by its own understanding, really, to rebuild the moral basis of society through encouraging a deeper Christian faith amongst its members. Uh, this manifested in a deep anti-communism, and through this, a tacit acceptance of Nazism, um, although Buckman did travel to Germany in an attempt to reconvert Hitler to Christianity which is, I think, a good summing up of the sort of worldview of the organization. Oh, God. Yeah, one of those types. Um, He famously once said, in fact, quote, I thank heaven for a man like Adolf Hitler, who built a front line of defense against the Antichrist of communism. Oh, God. Well, of course, Hitler is redeemable, but communism is irredeemable. It was this sort of a strange mixture of like religion, positive thinking, management training, and self-help that obviously has like thrived in the U.S. for the past century. But obviously, that's the prosperity. That's the prosperity gospel. Almost like the prosperity gospel, yeah, or, or something like that. But it also had this very strong emphasis on a, a conservative Christian sexual morality. Um, so, as an anti-communist and anti-cocksucker, it was no wonder that Tom took against them, and it was this virulent opposition that he held throughout the rest of his life, actually. Anyway, yeah. as a result of this scoop, he was kept on the express. So this was the era of um, the bright young things, which is this coterie of young aristocratic bohemians who were the sort of British manifestation of you know what American mis- American listeners might know as the Roaring Twenties. You know, the sort of the British equivalent, I guess, of um, F. F. Scott Fitzgerald and Great Gatsby and stuff. That generation of young people who were living through the prosperity of the post-war years in these victorious allied nations, um, but also through its cultural aftermath. Most of the bright young things were these sort of dissolute aristo snobs, but some were talented artists or accomplished novelists, um, people like Nancy Mitford, um, Evelyn Waugh, obviously, or Anthony Powell, all of whom wrote excellent novels about it. Um, I'd recommend Mitford's The Pursuit of Love and Evelyn Waugh's Vile Bodies especially. Um, their parties and their shenanigans were notorious. They were noted for their opulence and their licentious behavior, uh, something that managed to offend both socialists and conservatives, but obviously it made for fantastic newspaper copy. Yeah, it's a bit like in the Daily Mail today when they sort of cover you know, girls in short skirts getting drunk on nights out up north, and then just to make sure that you, you're so you're sure that you, know, you know what you're appalled about as a viewer. You know, They show 50 photos of young girls 
in their skirts with their then their skirts riding up or whatever their long legs just so you you can know what you're truly appalled about yes of course it's very important to um, have many such photos at which to be at which yeah. to be outraged but, yeah. but there's, there's also sort of a tattler aspect to this right as well because this is not this is not the the scandalous sex lives of the working class this is the scandalous sex lives of the rich and famous right absolutely and there's a generational aspect you know that the, like people are appalled because the you know perhaps the the elder brothers of these this generation had died in the war and they'd been seen as sort of golden generation who were lost and with this like supposed freedom that they'd won for their their younger brothers and sisters or and so on they were sort of uh, wasting it by living like this but obviously the, the, the war i think had a huge psychic effect on the nation and you know letting your hair down became a big part of culture afterwards of course and not just there you know but Tom obviously had been to university of a lot of them, so he was in this very good position to be able to infiltrate the scene, and he became the co-author of the paper's gossip column, The Talk of London. While Tom would have been the first to admit that the gossip columns were basically pretty frivolous, um, they did have some repercussions. First of all, Tom regards it as an opportunity to highlight what he called, quote, the absurdities and extravagances of the ruling class in a way calculated to enrage any working class or unemployed people, something he felt was, quote, not without value to the Communist Party. So this is a great example of balancing the contradictions of his life. You know, you might call it hypocrisy that he's sort of um, going out every weekend, every night, drinking champagne with all these rich and glamorous people and writing about it in his newspaper column, column getting paid. And he regards this as an exercise in class struggle. But perhaps more realistically than, than advancing their class struggle <laughs> through partying, he did actually use the column to push quite a lot of avant-garde culture, such as uh, Soviet films, um, as well as um, defending the pioneering lesbian novel The Well of Loneliness by Radcliffe Hall. So this all caught Beaver Brook's eye, and he got his own column, uh, writing under a new pseudonym, William Hickey, in which Beaver Brook urged him to cover more meaningful aspects. Over the years, he did, from the coronations of kings and popes. Uh, he travelled across the world, covering events in the US, the Middle East, um, and in the Soviet Union. He visited Spain twice during the Civil War, the first time at the start of the rebellion, where he visited Madrid and Valencia. And in Valencia, he actually dined with Ernest Hemingway and Martha Gellhorn, uh, where it's claimed they ate stewed cat, such were the, the shortages caused by the, uh, the insurrection against the Republic. His visit hardened his anti-fascist and republican views, definitely, and he managed to not only put those views into the paper, but also to cover Britain's own incipient fascist movement. And he was actually nearly attacked by a mob at a fascist meeting, having been taunted by the speaker. Uh, he was a sort of constant watchman against fascism, something that had been bolstered by his return to Spain at the end of the Civil War, when you know fascist victory was looming, where he sort of delivered food and medicine. But in 1939, on the eve of war in Europe, Tom's mother died, and so of his inheritance, he bought Bradwell Lodge, which is a, a reasonably modest and crumbling, but, but quite nice, half-Tudor, half-Georgian country house in Bradwell-on-Sea, a small village on a peninsula in Essex. Um, for non-UK listeners, Essex is a, is a county just outside of London. Uh, Bradwell Lodge was to become something like his life's passion where he, he loved to entertain his many friends, but it was also an albatross around his neck, causing him no end of financial problems. But as the war began, the, the home would go on to change his life. So having seen firsthand the effects of fascism in Spain, and having always been anti-appeasement, uh, Tom was a vocal supporter of the war against the Nazis. But this was contrary to the position taken by the Communist Party, which was held in the hands of uh, Stalinists who supported the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. 
And so, as Stalinists are wont to do, he was expelled from the party in the first years of the war. He travelled to France to cover the war as a journalist, and then to the US, where he was always keen to do his bit for the Allied troops. Uh, from his autobiography, quote, I shared my room with a Canadian sailor who was in acute need of consoling friendship. <laughs> I'm sure he was, Tom. Oh, boy. The kind only you could provide. <laughs> uh, just wait to the next line. One sign of this is the warmth and tightness of the embrace. Another is the speed, explosiveness, and creamier consistency of the ejaculation. <laughs> it's not you can't it doesn't work like that it's not oh it does does work it does work like that no the consistency the creamier consistency of the ejaculation signifies the particular need of consoling friendship well they hadn't had any consoling friendship for some time well i suppose i think my objection is more that we're calling this consoling (laughs) friendship (laughs) Well, the uh, the soldier seemed consoled. Check out the consoling friendship on the Canadian sailor. <laughs> um, but he didn't limit his war service solely to um, the serving military, but also to merchant mariners. Uh, in Scotland, later in the war, he had gone down into an air raid shelter off Prince's Street with a Norwegian sailor. Uh, he described sinking to his knees and getting to work on the sailor's, quote, long, uncircumcised and tapering, but rock hard. Consoling friendship. <laughs> but rock hard erection. Um, and then Love he. Uncircumcised, tapering, consoling friendship, don't you? <laughs> and then he was caught, uh, in his own words, wet handed by a policeman. <laughs> um. He ended up talking his way out of a morals charge, thanks to the policeman actually being a fan of his column, and he struck uh, struck up a friendship. <laughs> Do you think he, this is going to get us out of any morals charges? <laughs> they ended up uh, striking up a friendship that he had sort of fortuitously encouraged by sending the policeman six guineas worth of book tokens. Quote, I thought it thoroughly decent and Scottish of him not to pretend that this was a surreptitious gift or bribe in any way connected with the shelter incident. <laughs> thoroughly decent and Scottish of him. <laughs> um, I think it's worth pointing out that Tom's habit of cottaging and cruising um, wasn't really, as I think maybe at the time it was for most men, a sort of habit born out of necessity and the persecution of gay men. Um, you know, I think most at the time, most gay, gay men went cottaging because it was the only place that one could really pick up and, and fuck uh, in any way safely, although not that safely, um, especially if you're married or so on. But some, Tom seemed to have um, actively enjoyed cottaging as a sexual practice in itself. In his autobiography, he wrote, quote, I hankered after London, in particular after Soho, and most of all, I craved a certain deep and dark doorway in Rupert Street, in which I had stood for hours at a time, enjoying the quick embraces and gropings of other young layabouts, an even more dangerous and therefore more thrilling alternative to the simple urinals then plentiful in the mews and alleyways of West London. Oh, amazing. By the time he wrote his autobiography in the 1970s, the crackdown on public... Uh, homosex, I guess, that had followed the quote-unquote decriminalization. Um, actually, it had been one of the sort of moral forces, one of the impetuses behind decriminalization was to get rid of public sex. Um, that actually had led to the closure of many of those public toilets. Um, today, it's it's almost impossible to take a piss outside your own home in London without, without paying or theoretically paying. You, know, you have to go into a pub or cafe. Uh, and this is supposedly a moral civilization. 
Um, he too lamented this close, closure of public conveniences with um, a pretty strong argument to my mind, writing, quote, why municipal vandals should have thought it necessary to destroy so many of them, I do not know. I suppose this is one expression of anti-homosexual prejudice. Yet no homo, cottage cruising, ever present, prevented a hetero from merely urinating. While to do one's rounds of the cottages, the alley by Astoria, the dogleg lane opposite the Garrett Club, the one near the Ivy, the one off Wardour Street, the narrow passage by the Coliseum, ending up always in Ov Alley, off Philia Street, provided homos, not all of whom are given to the rougher spots, with healthy exercise. A bit of healthy exercise, uh, a bit of consoling really, friendship. Um, really, they should um, bring back cottaging as a public health uh, exercise. By 1942, Tom was back in London and out of the Communist Party, although the USSR had now entered the war. The last general election in the UK had been in 1935, but with the war, the major parties all agreed a truce, and so there was no election in 1940. As part of the truce, each party had agreed not to fear a candidate if an MP had died in office and a by-election was held. Uh, Tom, however, was now an independent. So in 1942, the MP for Malden, the Essex constituency where Bradwell Lodge was based, uh, was, we need the great name alarm again, Colonel Sir Edward Archibald's Ruggles Bryce MP. I'm sorry, what was that again, Hugh? Colonel Sir Edward Archibald Ruggles Bryce MP. I mean, it sounds like a, it sounds like a um, mm-hmm. PG Woodhouse name, but. It does sound like a PG Woodhouse name, but also somehow yeah. sounds like a sentence, but uh, continue. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, Colonel, uh, Colonel Sir Ruggles Bryce uh, died, uh, and Tom decided to stand at what was known as an independent Labour MP, um, although it's confusing, but that isn't the same thing as being a member of the independent Labour Party. Uh, but he stood on a platform that was derived from the 1941 committee, which was this group of independent left-wing socialist and liberal political figures who had called for um, increased efficiency in the war effort and then later for increased workers' control and work councils and after the war for full and free education, etc. So um, that later became the Commonwealth Party, which is a very fascinating moment for the left in the UK, but that's another story. Uh, perhaps more strikingly, though, Dryberg cast himself as something like a, a critical friend of Churchill, like here to tell him the hard truths about the war that no one in his party would do. So a few days before the by-election, the Axis powers actually captured uh, Tobruk in North Africa. Um, and so Tom's message seemed particularly appealing, and then he beat his Tory opponent. He noted that on his first day the, uh, as an MP, the, the Tory MP, uh, Sir Henry Chips Cannon, showed him the best toilets in the Palace of Westminster to go cruising in, in what he called, quote, an act of pure, disinterested, sisterly friendship, for he had no physical attraction for each other. Oh, bless. <laughs> um, in 1945, uh, with the end of the war, Tom joined the Labour Party, and he remained the Labour MP for Malden until 1955, when he stood down. Throughout that time, he remained a backbencher, uh, but he was active on the left of the Labour Party as a Bevanite, supporting um, state control of industry, uh, welfare state, full employment, social housing, anti-fascism, he was anti-colonialist, and all the other policies that today would probably get you expelled from the Labour Party. But what's wrong with that? Why are we calling him bad? He seems so far pretty good, a nice, good lefty with a, with a fun track record of enthusiastic cruising and... Um, we'll get to that shortly uh, in his relationship with his wife. His excuse me, what now? <laughs> yeah, quite. Um, 
But in the meantime, he he remained a journalist. Um, he was working now for Reynolds News, and uh, this caused some real serious problems because the Labour Party was in political difficulty in the autumn of 1950, and Tom had taken six weeks off to cover the Korean War, um, a war in which he had opposed British involvement. However, taken with both the excitement of covering the war and of, I suspect, spending so much time amongst British Marines, he ended up staying there for three months. Um, and in Korea, he was actually quite popular. His friendliness and his physical bravery were, were noted by squaddies and fellow reporters alike. And he took part in a nighttime landing raid by UN troops uh, on Chongjin in North Korea. But back in London, however, his Labour parties were furious. They'd lost 78 seats in the general election the year previously, so they had a majority of just five seats. Uh, in November, Parliament was to debate the legislation that they'd laid out in the King's speech, and Labour feared that they wouldn't win the vote, which would lead to a collapse of the government and another election. Uh, and Tom didn't make it, in fact, back for, in time for the vote. He, he only arrived for the final vote, although in the end, Labour managed to squeak through. But as a result, he was dragged before the parliamentary party to be dressed down. Um, he actually managed to retain the whip, which is um, a way of saying he wasn't um, not, not thrown out the party, but thrown out the parliamentary party. Um, but that was only thanks to the intervention of his friends, who included the, the future Labour Party leader, Michael Foote. But he was, however, censured for gross neglect of his duties. But miraculously, he did manage to retain his position on the party's National Executive Committee. None of this gallivanting around the Marines or managing to escape career death would have been particularly surprising to Tom's friends. What was surprising was what was to come in the new year of 1951, however. Tom was to be married to one Ina Binfield, a local dedicated Labour Party activist and former vice chairman of her local party. A a, a a female woman lady yeah. wife yeah uh, she was gracious to me uh, my condolences to her <laughs> well yeah <laughs> she was um she was very well respected really she was uh, an accomplished and very talented organizer she was liked respected by labor officials um in the in the party she was regarded as a very good fun good company um she was three years tom's senior she'd been married before and had a long-term common-law husband who had recently died so had Tom hoodwinked her into marriage, or are we talking about a bad bisexual here? Well, uh, neither really. It was a, it was a marriage of convenience, um, at least at first, and both parties understood it to be so. Ina knew that she she would be of political service to Tom, I guess, as a sort of political hostess, and in return, she would enjoy his company, his friendship, and his home. Tom, meanwhile, probably felt like having a wife would make the management of Bradwell Lodge easier. Um, it seems she probably hopes that he would cur curtail, if not stop, his cruising habits. But nobody really regarded Tom as having turned. Uh, almost everyone in Tom's life knew exactly what I got up to. Um, on hearing of his impending nuptials, uh, Winston Churchill is said to have remarked, Oh, well, buggers can't be cheesers. <laughs> the men did have a way with words. <laughs> and it must be said, and it must be said, a lot of Churchill's gay jokes are um i mean he was from, from a they come from a knowing place let's just say that uh, yeah he was, i think he was pretty open-minded about homosexuality or at least very worldly about it he you know rum sodomy in the lash is what he described the navy traditions as being um uh. but he didn't he didn't like tom dryberg very much uh he once said tom dryberg is the sort of man who gives sodomy a bad name 
And why is that? Is that because of Dreiberg's sort of left-wing politics or because of something else? I think a mixture of like his left-wing politics, probably his openness in some ways. Um, probably he just, I think he just didn't like it. I think it's a good line for someone you don't like. It is, yeah. So the church service for their wedding was um, pure Tom. Um, he'd ask the organist when they arrived to play the old German folk song, O Tannenbaum. Of course, that song is better known as the tune to the uh, socialist anthem, The Red Flag. Um, and so the service then continued with, you know, absolute bells and smells all the way through. Uh, one guest actually had to leave the church after she had a coughing fit from all the incense. Um, oh, wedding gold, Tom. <laughs> a Roman Catholic MP uh, had said that they, he thought the rights, were so, the rights were so outrageous that he felt like a nonconformist. But the wedded bliss didn't last very long, however. Um, upon arriving, I was going to say that the more incense that you have at the wedding, the less seriously <laughs> you take the vows. Perhaps. Um, on arriving at a hotel that he'd booked in Brighton for them, Tom was appalled to find that Ina had actually phoned ahead and changed their reservation from two single rooms to one double. She broke How her dare the bride. <laughs> she broke her marriage vows. He would complain. She tried to sleep with me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Um, the marriage was, was unfortunately, uh, and strangely, considering they both went into her eyes open, um, a complete disaster from the start. And frankly, that was all down to Tom's behavior. By all accounts, Ina was um, a very caring and tolerant woman who cared very deeply for Tom, who treated her abysmally in turn. Uh, she did her best to get his sort of atrocious accounts back in the black. And when he decided to open Bradwell Lodge to the public for a fee in order to sort of pay something towards his running it costs, it was Ina who who married who managed it and um, showed the guests around and stuff like that. But just a, a year after the wedding, she wrote to him, quote, I am or was a good-tempered, average, averagely intelligent woman with wide interests and many friends. You were slowly turning me into a bad-tempered bitch. Well, that'll happen if you have a husband who will not stop engaging in <laughs> friendship and toilets and completely ignoring you, you know, and, and uh, not only ignoring her, but seemingly being, seemingly being really dismissive and not even, not even attentive in a companionate way. Oh, yeah. Cruel. Yeah. Like, I think in saying that she's being unfair on herself there. Like, he, he would ignore her. He would scowl at her. He would mock her choice of reading, uh, her, her choice of music, what she put on the radio when he let her play stuff on the radio. Um, he would sort of act indignant when she was on the phone to her friends. Um, what an I, asshole. Why did he marry her? Yeah, I don't, like, I, don't, I don't get it. Like, I think, I think he thought it was a good idea, but when it came to it, he just couldn't live with someone else. Um. I get the impression, actually, it wasn't even like a lavender wedding. It was more like a, just an attempt to get a free servant slash beard combination. Actually, his friends say that he sort of treated her like a servant. And um, as his biographer, Francis Ween, pointed out, like he was notorious for his, his terrible treatment of any sort of waiter or serving staff anyway, to the point of cruelty. Oh, God. Yeah, classic. Excellent, excellent communism there. Yeah, classic Oxbridge leftist, basically. Um. So a decade into this wedding, into this marriage, sorry, she wanted to get divorced, um, but she still sort of thought of his best interests and the effect that it would have on his career. So they worked out this deal where she'd spend, get to spend time away, but she could come back to Bradwell Lodge and they'd sort of maintain this front. But even then, like having had this conversation, she still treated him absolutely abysmally. And so another decade later in 1971, after 20 years of marriage, when Tom had to sell the house, she sort of finally broke free of him, um, although they ever, never actually got divorced. She wrote to him, quote, 
The misunderstandings between us are endless, and I suppose it is useless to try to clear them up. I have always been prepared to try and be friends with you, but you have been unable and willing to respond. So there it is. Um, Seems his, reasonable. Yeah, yeah, totally reasonable. I feel really feel for her. Um, and in his autobiography, um, as you've heard, he he's pretty open about his personal life uh, with all the the cocksucking of sailors and lighthouse keepers. But in his autobiography, she doesn't mention uh, she, she doesn't warrant a single mention. After two decades of marriage, she doesn't even mention her name. Doesn't even mention her name. I mean, to be fair, his his autobiography uh, he died halfway through writing it, but still, you'd think at some point she would have come up. Jesus Christ! Um, maybe he was leaving the the the, the apology till to the end. Who knows? Um, his his record his record in Parliament, meanwhile, was um, much better. Uh, in 1959, he returned to Parliament as MP for Barking, a terrible constituency MP by all accounts. But despite being in his mid-50s, he was very much in tune with the sort of emerging swinging 60s that were about to start. Um, his strongest part, uh, advocacy in Parliament was for unilateral nuclear disarmament and his constant pushing for laws to tackle racial discrimination. Um, he called for the oh. yeah he called for the removal of troops from Northern Ireland. Um, decades before it happened, uh, he opposed the war in Vietnam, and he opposed the racist regimes in Rhodesia and South Africa. Um, perhaps more surprisingly, he was a very strong advocate for the decriminalisation of cannabis, something that, again, even today would put him on the, the very far left of the Labour Party. This was partly due to the fact that he had met and made friends with Mick Jagger, who was at that point... Oh, boy. Yeah. He was at that point being relentlessly hounded by the authorities for his drug use. Um, and he was introduced to him by his new friend, Alan Ginsberg, who had met Tom and been impressed not just by his uh, friendship with Alistair Crowley, but also on learning that Tom was a huge fan of William S. Burroughs. <laughs> so we're getting really deep into bad gays territory now. <laughs> you know, like, take your pick of any of those as terrible, terrible gays. Um, so he was sat next to um, Jagger on a couch in Mick Jagger's flat, and Tom complimented him on the size of the bulge in his crotch. And Ginsburg would, would write, quote, I was astounded at his boldness. I had eyes for Jagger myself, but I was very circumspect about Jagger's body. Yet here was Dryberg coming on crude. There was a kind of Zen directness about it that was interesting. I suddenly realized that with directness like that, you could score many times. <laughs> like, imagine shocking shocking Ginsburg as well with your homosexuality. Um, that takes that takes a true dedication to the art and craft of <laughs> of uh well sorry. not of sodomy because it no. seems like he was just a cocksucker, but it takes yeah. a true dedication to the art and craft of cocksucking. Absolutely. Um I think that directness was perhaps like a result of his libido, but also of his power. Um in his memoirs he had said, quote uh, fear of the consequences, penal or even medical, does not for long deter the incorrigible practicing homosexual any more than the fear of the rope deter deterred the average murderer. If anything, I became more promiscuous after my election to Parliament, relying on my new status to get me out of tight corners. Oh boy. I mean, this is just standard for British homosexual MPs. Um, a good example of this double standard um, occurred in the middle of the war in 1943, when the Conservative peer Ian Maitland, the 15th Earl of Lauderdale, was caught fucking a kitchen porter in a back alley in Soho. And the judge ordered the jury were to find the Lord not guilty, 
as he hadn't had sex with a porter, but to find the porter guilty because he had had sex with Lord Lauderdale. What is this, the Immaculate Conception? <laughs> like <laughs> uh, Schrodinger's homosexual. Schrodinger's homosexual, that's right. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Schrodinger's, Schrodinger's sodomy. Yeah. Astonishingly, Tom actually had only been prosecuted once in 1935 when he'd been um, he'd taken to bed with these two unemployed Scottish mine workers who needed a place to sleep, and he gallantly offered him his bed with him in it. Um, and he clearly tried it on with one of them and had been rebuffed, um, after which the men went to the police. He was arrested and kept in the cells overnight, but Lord Beaverbrook paid for his lawyers, and so he was acquitted in the end. Um, on another occasion, he was arrested for cruising, having been picked up by a pretty policeman, a sort of agent provocateur, in a cottage off Theobald's Road. And there he got the charges dropped simply by standing his ground and by telling the coppers that um, you know magistrates don't really look, look kindly on um, uncorroborated, uncorroborated police testimony. Um, you know, Then, as now, I think most police were looking for easy arrests and easy convictions. And actually, he provided that advice to to readers of his autobiography, um, also advising that when they were to visit a new town, for example, gay men should pick up a copy of the Gay News and they should get advice from the Campaign for Homosexual Equality about where's safe to cruise or not. Hmm. Um, the 1967 Act that decriminalised gay sex between men in privately owned homes was not use, not much used to a man such as him who wanted a cottage. He wrote, quote, the passing of the Sexual Offences Act, welcome as it was, really made no difference to the problem of the lonely and promiscuous, those who have not the gift or the chance of fidelity to one partner. For them, the best solution would be the would seem to be the licensing of male brothels on a modest scale, run by respectable persons, with charges strictly controlled. They could be free at the time of use, as the NHS was meant to be, such as I have occasionally... <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. This is even this is this is even better than Sam Delaney's than Sam Delaney's like public public sex clubs for all free at the point of use brothels. Oh my god! Um, such as I've oh my god! Such as I've occasionally patronized in New York and San Francisco. I don't yeah, think I mean, those were free at the point of use, Tom. No, he was just he they they were the brothels, and he was just advocating a national. Um, a national uh, rent boy service, I guess. The NRS. <laughs> just imagine, yeah. just imagine uh, Keir Starmer coming out and giving a speech opposing Tory cuts, making the wait list on the national rent boy service <laughs> more than twelve oh, weeks. That's the problem now. Is the only way you can get an appointment with a rent boy is you have to phone up at eight a.m. every morning. Hope, hope to be in first in the queue. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, oh god, that's depressing. Can you can you believe the Tories are trying to privatize the rent? <laughs> um, Tom retired from Parliament in 1974, and he began work on his memoirs that would be published uh, very sadly for for the public for readers. Uh, they were published unfinished after his death, but he he was forced to sell Bradwell, his life passion, uh, due to his sort of financial troubles, and he'd tried to sell it to National Trust. But his debts taken out against the house meant that uh, that was impossible, and it went to a private buyer. Instead, he moved into a flat in the Barbican Estates, the modernist housing development that was um, still under construction at the time, actually. And he spent time with his friends, um, often younger men, like um, the, at the time, left-wing journalist Christopher Hitchens, who he was close with, um, or holidaying with Gore Vidal. He also um, 
used to write the crossword for Private Eye, which is a notoriously um, filthy cryptic crossword. Um, and he continued to attend mass, of course, and uh, one must assume he continu- continues to visit public toilets. In 1975, he was made a peer, a member of the House of Lords, and he entered the House of Lords in early 1976 as Baron Bradwell. Uh, he was still committed to political change, and in the last months, he moved a motion to withdraw British troops from Northern Ireland, uh, one of the last things he did in, in Parliament, but his health was failing. And on the 12th of August, in the back of a cab from Paddington to his Barbican flat, he had a heart attack and died. He was 71. At his funeral, the red flag was laid over his coffin, and they sprinkled it with holy water. Thank you all so much for supporting the show, for listening to the show. A special shout out to those of you who support us every month on Patreon. Uh, that really does help us um, make the show. It helps us um, take the time that we need to do it. Um, and uh, it's really something that we enormously appreciate. If uh, you are interested in uh, joining our Patreon, uh, you can find information about that at uh, badgazepod.com. Um, there is no special podcast content for Patreon listeners. Um, nothing is locked behind paywalls. Um, we have some small rewards, but really it's just about, uh, you supporting something that's important or interesting to you. And, um, if that's something that you're able to do that you're interested in doing, we really, really do appreciate it. Another great way you can help support the show is to check out our book, which we published last year, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History. It's out now in hardback from Verso and will be coming out soon in paperback if um, if you prefer paperback. And it covers a whole series of evil and complicated LGBTQ people from history and the way that their relationships affected and were affected by colonialism. Yeah, it's... Um if I say so myself, a fun read. Um, and we really tried to bring the stories together um, into this coherent narrative. Um, it's been a real joy to get to tour it. And uh, if you're interested in the book, you can find out information on the book and on upcoming events that we're doing to support the book at badgazepod.com slash book. And now on with the show. Well, thank you for telling that story, Hugh. Uh, what an amazing, fascinating life. Um, I know he was friends with Guy Burgess, and there's some allegations about him being involved in espionage. Um, and I also know that you are a resident expert on gays and espionage. So <laughs> is there anything to that? Um, is there anything to that? Well, um, first off, yes. Uh, there is n- there's no doubt that, that um, Tom was a good friend of, um, of Guy Burgess, the Cambridge Five member who was this British double agent who defected to the Soviet Union. We've discussed the Cambridge Five before on this podcast in our episode on one of its members, Anthony Blunt. Um, Burgess is a bad gay, perhaps even more interesting than Blunt, actually. And Tom visited him in Moscow after he defected, and he wrote a pretty sympathetic book about him. Um, but after Tom died, a British journalist for the Daily Express named Chapman Pincher um, alleged that Tom had also been a Soviet agent. But Pincher was kind of like a self-declared spy catcher journalist, um, and he was um, notorious for the way he sort of threw around these allegations of tre- treachery, uh, which were usually made after the subjects had died and they couldn't sue. Um, his allegations included both uh, Sir Roger Hollis, who was the Director General of MI5, one of um, Britain's major spy agencies, and even Harold Wilson, the Labour uh, Prime Minister. 
Um, according to the eminent historian of the left, E.P. Thompson, quote, the columns of the Daily Express, meaning Chapman Pinch's columns, are a kind of official urinal in which, side by side, high officials of MI5 and MI6, sea lords, permanent undersecretaries, Lord, Lord George Brown, chiefs of the air staff, nuclear scientists, Lord Whig, and others stand patiently leaking in the public interest. Mr. Pincher is too self-important and light-witted to realise how often he is being used. Sounds like a good description of a lot of right-wing journalists. <laughs> yeah, like basically people would just feed him stuff because they knew he'd publish it if it was anti-communist or anti-Soviet. Um, and a lot of the stuff they fed was just bullshit, but they, they, you know, they could use it in their own interests in, in espionage. You know, like It's useful to have someone like that on board, I guess. Um, the book Climate of Treason by Andrew Boyle, which was um, an exhaustive account of the Cambridge Five uh, written um, around the time that or the whole thing came came to light. He he includes no details at all on Dryberg's alleged tre- treachery. And there are later controversial books like Spycatcher, which did repeat the accusation. And the 2015 biography of Burgess by Andrew Lowney um, fleshes those out a bit, saying that Tom was turned as it were, by a KGB sting operation at a urinal in the Metropole Hotel in Moscow where he'd been cottaging on his trip to visit Burgess. And from that moment on, he allegedly fed, fed the KGB information about the you know discussions of the Labour Party National Executive Committee, which he'd sat on you know, from 1949 to 1972. Um, he was even cha- chairman of the Labour Party in 1958, I think. Moscow, moreover, allegedly used Tom as a willing dupe in the book about Burgess. Um, and he also alleged uh, on information that he'd claimed that he'd received from Blunt that between the wars, Tom had been recruited by Maxwell Knight, the um, anti-Semitic, anti-communist, homophobic and homosexual MI5 spymaster, who was actually the model for M in James Bond. Dryberg, it's alleged, was passing information about the Communist Party of Great Britain to MI5 and only stopped when Blunt figured out that this mole, who was codenamed M8, was Dryberg <clears throat> after reading one of Dryberg's books. And so he passed so like, that a, like a triple agent or a. No, at that point, the allegation is that he was just an MI5 agent who was a mole in the, in the Communist Party of Great Britain. And the allegation is that Blunt figured it out. Um, because he read one of Dryberg's books and somehow put two and two together. And then he passed that information to this handler who then informed the, the Communist Party. And that's why Tom was expelled. But the main problem right. here here is that actually in this allegation is that Tom was expelled from the, um, the, the Communist Party like almost a decade before he'd published his first book. So that can't be true. And actually, I think the reality is perhaps even stranger. I think Maxwell Knight was potentially sexually attracted to Tom as a younger man. Uh, I think he was also very interested in finding out that Tom was a friend of Alistair Crowley's because um, Maxwell Knight had attempted to sort of become one of his adepts, you know, part of his cult. Um, In fact, one of the rumors, uh, one of the reasons that the the sort of rumor appeared was precisely because the two of them were meeting so much. They were so indiscreet, like dining out together and sharing gossip. Um, And, and also, like Tom was a member of the Communist Party, but he never held any like meaningful position in the party, and he wasn't privy to any information that could ever have been useful tonight. Really, he could, there's no information that Tom had that he could have easily got any elsewhere. And one of the problems with this, is, as Francis Ween pointed out, and as I mentioned earlier, is that Pincher himself was, you know, often used. And he was being fed information by the security services to publish in his columns as part of their intelligence operations. You know, things that aren't always true, but which. 
uh, Pincher, who was this constant red baiter, was all too willing to to believe and publish. And secondly, that Pincher was a, an inveterate hater of the Labour Party, and especially the the sort of Bevanite Labour left. And there are more logical errors in this as well. Um, for a start, like how do you blackmail a man for being homosexual when everyone from his wife to Winston Churchill knows that he's a homosexual? Like who are you, who are you going to out him to? I mean, I suppose to his constituents. I guess, but I don't know how you'd go about that as a KGB. Um, and then, secondly, what sort of um, intelligent agent, intelligence agent, would trust their state secrets to a, a man who was quite literally a gossip columnist? Ween, Ween actually remarks um, he he uh, he quotes this, this this guy called Lord Paget, who was. Um, uh, no fan of the security services, but he said, quote, he could not believe that even they were lunatic enough to recruit a man like Dryberg. <laughs> oh, God. So, so basically, he just had a reputation as like this huge, slutty, gossipy bottom and uh, uh, with no real access to power or secrets. Um, he doesn't sound like the perfect agent. I think in reality, actually, I think these these allegations sort of gained ground after his death because there was this this period of heightened interest in espionage and treachery after Blunt had been exposed as an agent, um, and that sort of fascination was compounded by so many of these um, spies having been gay, um, and also this was sort of at a time in the late seventies and early eighties where gay people were. Uh, as a subject were becoming much more part of the public imagination. They were understood more and seen more, and that was part of this moral panic, and especially a moral panic regarding the left and especially the Labour left. So this is all happening kind of around the same time of the so-called like loony left councils, for example. Um, I've actually written a piece for this um, uh, for my newsletter about how Private Eye covered this period, which gives a good taste of this sort of mixture of like queer baiting and red baiting. And it's a sort of... Um, moral panic that's not not dissimilar at all to what's happening at the moment um so this story of like a gay labor left mp having also been a kgb agent was kind of too good for papers not to run given that we're talking about bad gays i also want to ask um i've heard allegations or 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 i've seen some sort of newspaper articles don't remember the details um about uh, dryberg uh, having potentially been involved in uh, the abuse of of underage boys and uh, I wonder if that's something you've had evidence for evidence against yeah I, I do want to talk about that because that is um, I think the, the the primary concern with his sort of behavior and his history um, and it is extremely complicated so I'll go into that um, and I'll present you know what what what's out there Um so in 2015, the Labour MP Simon Danchuk uh, gave a speech in London where he said that he had been told by a retired detective who had approached him that in the 1950s and 1960s, he had been monitoring Tom Dryberg's house and he had seen a number of teenage escapees from a uh, young offenders institute um, at Feltham enter his house. And the policeman alleged that um, he had taken the case that he'd, he'd, he'd then met one of these um, teenage boys and he'd um, the teenage boy had told him that he'd been abused in the house and that he'd taken the case then to the director for public prosecutions and that the, pro- the director for public prosecutions had decided not to act on it. Um, and Danchuk regarded this as part of a pattern um, and there certainly were 
cover-ups, a lot of cover-ups of MPs um, having abused children at a time, uh, such as the Liberal MP uh, Cyril Smith, uh, who was a famous case. And um, other Labour MPs at the time, such as Tom Watson, had levelled similar allegations against former MPs like uh, the Conservative Leon Britton. And they often made these allegations um, under par- parliamentary privilege, which means um, uh, in, in the UK, if you make a claim under parliamentary privilege, you can't be sued for it. Um, so it's a chance for people to raise, to whistleblow, essentially. Um, but it makes it complicated if there's not then a trial afterwards to determine the truth as either a civil or criminal trial. So in this case, this series of allegations um, as part of a wider series of scandals to do with um, childhood sexual abuse in children's homes and regarding religious organisations led to an independent inquiry in the UK, which was called the Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse. So it's undeniable that childhood sexual abuse was committed by many high-ranking men, um, such as uh, Jimmy Savile, for example, is probably the most famous case, but also including MPs um, throughout the period the inquiry covered. Um, Then the inquiry was was extremely broad, and it covered everything from individual MPs and organizations' relationships with um, PI, which was the Paedophile Information Exchange, which was a pro-paedophilia advocacy organization, is how it would have described itself. I think probably a grooming organization is probably more accurate and a number of other cases. So it's, it's a very wide, it has a w- very wide remit. So yeah, it's, it's clear that there were definitely police cover-ups of important, um, powerful people at the time, powerful men. And also the evidence was later dis- destroyed. Um, and obviously I think it's incumbent upon our understanding of the sort of ethics around sexual violence and sexual assault to, to, to believe those who come forward of these, um, with, with, um, with allegations. But in this case, that's complicated by the fact that we don't actually know who the people are who are making the allegations and what the allegations are at all. Um, the person who came forward was actually a policeman who had made a claim on behalf of third parties that he didn't name and we don't know so we don't know who the alleged victims were um but more importantly we don't actually know what the the nature of those claims are so one issue here is the elision uh, then and now the sort of confusion between homosexuals sexual predators and pedophiles um which was you know that was clearly something that was understood by wider popular culture let's say straight culture in a very different way to would be now so some of the more, more lurid accusations that accompany these allegations online uh, and are around dryberg specifically um for example um accuse him of of, of um abusing these children these well these boys um and wearing fishnet stockings there's a big part of them that th- there's a lot of these allegations like oh he wore fishnet stockings but that there seems to be n- no evidence in that in the inquiry at all. And the more I looked at it, the only place I could find any evidence for this accusation about fishnet stockings actually came from this comedy sketch from the time by um, this uh, pair of comedians. No, the, 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 the characters were called Derek and Clive, uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, like fa- very famous English satirists and comedians. And they did this sketch at the time about um, the, where they play these two cabbies and they say how they talk about having um, this puffer dryberg in the back of his cab and that he's masturbating in fishnet stockings um, with a rent boy 
which is like just a very standard piece of you know Pete and Dud's grotesquery. But that's not. There's no. There seems to be no evidence in in even even in the police officers' accusations that this was a part of the allegations. And then this elision, of course, continues to some extent in the in the the report. And I read the relevant report parts of the report, where there's quite a lot of discussion about Tom Dryberg, but only in ex- to the extent of him being a cottager, like a compulsive cottager, and says that like any information about Dryberg would have been sent to the police, but it doesn't remark further than that. But I don't really know what being a cottager necessarily has to do with allegations that he abused teenage boys in his home. But the important part of this, I think, really in terms of this 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 elision, this like bringing together confusion between these two categories, is that up until 1967, both homosexuality and childhood sexual abuse were sexual offences. And, and this idea that um, homosexual, homosexuals were sort of inherently predatory and especially towards children was commonplace. Um, and so while the age of consent is now equalised at 16 in the UK, um, uh, regardless of, of the gender of the uh, people having sex, at that time the age of consent for same-sex acts was 21, but was 16 for, for heterosexuals, precisely because there was this assumption um, of sexual predation on the part of older men. And so given that these were escapees from Feltham, uh, it, it, it's likely that the boys would have been over the age of consent today, let's say. I think the age of Feltham, in, in, uh, Feltham um, people who were detained at Feltham at the time was like 14 to 21 I see. So, the, so in other words, it's possible that that a story about twenty-year-olds um, has now been conflated into a story about fourteen or fifteen-year-olds. Yeah, exactly. And 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 that maybe it makes more sense in this case to think of it as a story about twenty-year-olds, given that we have a fairly detailed record from multiple sources of Dryberg's erotic life, and there doesn't seem to be other evidence. That doesn't seem to at be all. That doesn't well. The, 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 if, which, 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 which is not to say that which is not to say that nothing happened, but it's to say that the balance of evidence does not support substantiating this kind I, of serious claim. I wouldn't necessarily even go that far. What I'd say is that we do have uh, remarkably frank evidence on the nature of his erotic life, as he himself reported it. If he if he was to have been. Um, abusing children or abusing teenage boys then that then he wouldn't have written about that of course in his in his um in his memoirs um so that's one thing to right, take to account. I, the more the more important thing to say oh well oh, having said that there, there perhaps was a more openness about potential childhood sexual abuse and people having let's quote unquote a fondness for boys <laughs> At the time, that was kind of understood maybe a little bit differently, uh, uh, improperly, in, in of course. But but th- there was a vocabulary for people who were paedophilic or pederastic to talk about that. And when he talks about his sexual desire and he recounts his sexual desire, it's very clear that what he is attracted to in in his own account is is not boys but men. Right, and and also none of the other people who are talking about his sex life with each other, frankly, are talking about a fondness for boys. No, no, like the 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 thing that they that after he dies, his friends are talking about and saying it was sad and disappointing about his life was specifically cottaging. Um, but I think the more important thing is uh, that I think the thing that makes it most confusing in terms of the allegations is that a police officer at the time 
who was watching his house and saw someone over the, who had now over the age of consent, but could could he even be in, you know twenty or twenty one would have um, would have seen that as a sexual crime with a minor. So when he says, "I saw boys going in there," he could have been talking about nineteen or twenty year olds. I'm not arguing that like a fifty something member of parliament picking up an eighteen year old SKP in a in a public toilet doesn't raise significant ethical questions, of course. But I do think it's it's mar- markedly different from uh, most of the other crimes that are covered in the inquiries, which are based around members of parliament and other powerful figures who were regularly visiting. Um, children's homes and grooming underage vulnerable sometimes prepubescent children for sexual abuse it, it, it it's ha- different yeah um i mean but having said that it doesn't necessarily clean clear up his innocence or guilt either way um i would say it's worth pointing out that many of the accusations that were made at the time such as the accusations that tom watson made against uh, leon Britton, uh, were entirely without merit and they resulted in large payouts for his his family because he, he died without being exonerated. Um, and it's also clear that being a homosexual MP at the time did make you, could make you a target for prosecution. So although we've talked about how he managed to get away with it, um, that was no, by no means a given. For example, Ian Harvey, who was a very promising young junior minister, conservative junior minister. He was arrested for having sex with a man in St. James's Park at exactly this time in the early well in the early 50s um and and um, his power didn't protect him he was he was fired and charged but but having said that the cover the cover-ups were were real and were um extremely effective so it's a very difficult call to make but i don't know it's perfectly possible that he could have met and abused um minors while cottaging but it's also perfectly possible that, like with Leon Britton, these accusations were sort of bound up with um, some political false allegations. And in Tom's case specifically, allegations that at the time, um, and now having read the report, I was quite shocked at the report by how much they focused on cottaging as a, him cottaging. In, um, but the, the, the allegations at the time that, that conflated um, homosexuality with, with um, child abuse. Well, that... Uh, that makes a lot of sense, um, and I think that's a very detailed uh, working through of, of what can be known here. So, Hugh, Tom Dreiberg, definitely gay. <laughs> I think that's a no question. But No question. Uh, bad or not bad? I think it's in some ways maybe it's worth looking back at the start of the episode when you know he, uh, I said that he demanded that his own funeral features this anti-eulogy, cataloging his life as a sinner. And I think it's true what this um, clergyman had said in this, which was, um, quote, he was something of a greedy boy, um, that he was sort of a sexual glutton more than anything else. He's someone who wanted and enjoyed the physicality of sex. And I also agree with the the, the vicar who's, who, when he said, um, quote, Tom knew he was a sinner and in need of grace. He also knew how to avail himself of it. So I think that's a much fairer assess- assessment than those obituarists who saw his homosexuality as, a, as his tragedy, his Achilles heel. Um, I don't really believe he was a tragic man who lived an unfulfilled life or, you know, failed to live up to his promise as his friends seem to think. I, I think he was an accomplished man, a principled man to an extent. His accomplishments were kind of overlooked as a result of his homosexuality. Um, I think, uh, you know, by, by sheer force of character, he overcame what was probably a, a pretty sh- shaky and unpleasant start in life in order to live his life on his own terms as he wanted. 
Um, I think the idea that his life was tragic or his potential was unfulfilled or, or that he was a traitor is something that's been superimposed on him by people who needed his life to appear tragic in order to justify their own acquiescence to a moral order. So his sex life, his emotional life was mostly you know, spent on his knees in public toilets with strangers. And his compatriots, who claimed to be his friends, clearly found that a sort of sad and unfilling form of human affection. Um, but on many, unlike many men at the time who who resorted to cottaging and cruising because society shuns their attempts to f- their, their attempts to want to form longer lasting sexual relations, I can't really find any evidence that Tom didn't just enjoy that sex life wholeheartedly. Uh, he wrote in his memoirs, um, quote, The usual shallow sneer at homosexuals in any sort of public life is that they're hypocrites. The charge is false. In my own case, the two interests were parallel and simultaneous, and I was not a hypocrite. Whether functioning as an acolyte in a sanctuary, or practicing fellatio in some hotel room or station WC, I was doing what I most wanted to do at that moment, and doing it with complete sincerity. So on those terms, despite all the contradictions... Um, I, I do find him admirable. I guess the question comes down to um, the allegations um, made made by this policeman um, about whether or not he uh, was involved in childhood sexual abuse. And I think, you know, obviously that that is the the crux, uh, uh, and it's something that that without further investigation, we can never really know. Well, thank you, Hugh, for telling us that uh, story. If people want to learn more about Tom Dryberg, uh, where are some places that they can go that you uh, used to research the episode? Well, the, the first is the book, um, his, his autobiography, um, which was called Ruling Passions, the autobiography of Tom Dryberg. And the second is um, the one by Francis Ween that I mentioned, which um, currently its title, because uh, it's actually changed, I think, for its second edition, but currently its title is The Soul of Indiscretion. Tom Dryberg, poet, philanderer, legislator, and outlaw. And that's by Francis Ween. Um, and I will also say that um, for those um, who are interested specifically in um, the, the the inquiry, that all the evidence from the inquiry um, is uploaded onto the the website for the independent inquiry into child, into child sexual abuse um, and can, can be seen online. Well, thanks for that, Hugh. Um, you can follow the show on Twitter at BadGazePod and at BadGazePod.com. You can find out more about the show, find out more about our Patreon, and order our book, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History, or pre-order in paperback. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at BenWritesThings. You can find me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy. And uh, see you soon. Till next week. Bye now. Bye. Bad. 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 Bad, 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 bad,